Hello, welcome to the podcast on consciousness with Bernard Bars. Open-minded conversations on some new ideas about the scientific study of consciousness in the brain. I'm Nat Geld, this show's producer. We're here today with Bernie Bars, acclaimed author in psychobiology, including his newest book titled On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, Updated Works on Global Workspace Theory. Bernie is the originator of Global Workspace Theory, GWT, and Global Workspace Dynamics, a theory of human cognitive architecture, the cortex, and consciousness, and one of the founders of the modern science of consciousness. But first, we want to thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in with a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's new book on consciousness. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, and I'll spell it. S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com. And be sure to enter the word books, B-O-O-K-S, in the coupon code box during checkout for your 50% savings. Of course, they're available everywhere books are sold, although your VIP discount is only available in the Nautilus shop. This episode features two interesting student interviewers, cognitive science student Ilian Daskalov from UC Irvine and Aliyah Squara, a PhD candidate at Sarin Lab, Center for Mind and Brain at UC Davis. Ilian, Aliyah, and Bernie Bars will discuss his global workspace theory, GWT, which began with this question. How does a serial, integrated, and very limited stream of consciousness emerge from a nervous system that is mostly unconscious, distributed, parallel, and of enormous capacity? Global workspace theory is a widely used framework for the role of conscious and unconscious experiences in the functioning of the brain, as Bernie first suggested in 1983. And in this episode, we'll explore how we can understand the rapidly accumulating body of evidence on global workspace functions. Hi, Ilya. Hi, Ilian, and welcome. Before I hand the talking stick over to y'all, we'd love to learn a little bit more about each of you, please. So, hi, Nat. Uh, my name is Ilya Squara, and I am a PhD candidate at the University of California, Davis, in cognitive neuroscience. My research focuses on compassion and responses to suffering. So, how is it that we can work with our relationship to suffering, whether it's our own or others, so that we can relate to it and respond in more adaptive ways. Before that, I have done research in adolescent emotion development, really interested in questions of consciousness. So actually some of my earliest work was with Nat and with Bernie, learning about the study of consciousness from the neuroscientific perspective. So it's really exciting to be back here again today. Hello everyone, my name is Ilian Daskalov. I am a senior at UCI. I'm currently studying cognitive science. My interests are sleep and consciousness. I'm also passionate about distributing science to the general public. Prior to getting involved with neuroscience and cognitive science, I was a business major. However, that was not what I felt was calling me. So this is where I ended up. And I love the fact that we get to discuss some of my favorite topics here today. Awesome. With us today is our featured guest and the um, main interviewer actually on this podcast, but today being interviewed, uh, we have Dr. Bernard Bars. So Bernie, can you just give the listeners a little information about 
who you are and your background. Well, I'm basically a kid from the sticks who ended up uh, going in the right direction in spite of all the wise advice to me not to do so. And I got interested, first of all, in language and then the human mind. And then since consciousness was a kind of taboo some decades ago and still is in some places in the sciences, I blundered into the wrong field, obviously. And then the world changed after some years, and it suddenly turns out to be the right field. So I'm very interested in consciousness, like every other philosopher in human history has been, because consciousness is a completely natural topic for human beings to talk about. And then it took a while to break through the taboo that existed at least up to 20 years ago. In some places, I think the taboo still exists. So that was the hard part. And then the fun part was really just thinking about it and realizing how much we had already gathered scientifically about consciousness. And so we knew all kinds of things, but it was fragmented. I'm going to say, so that actually leads us into what we're talking about today. So more than interested in consciousness, Bernie has actually developed one of the leading theories on how consciousness might work called the global workspace theory. So if you were with us in episode 16, we previously talked about the origins and background of global workspace theory. So if you haven't listened to that, that's a really good primer on what the thought is and the origins were of the global workspace theory of consciousness. This episode, episode 17, we're going to explore the links between cutting edge brain evidence and how that supports our understanding of consciousness and the global workspace theory. So as a brief background, global workspace theory or GWT, as you'll hear us refer to it during this podcast, started in the 1980s as a purely psychological theory of conscious cognition. Based on today's far more detailed understanding of the brain, GWT is adapted to these new waves of neural evidence. The brain-based version of GWT is called Global Workspace Dynamics, or GWD, and this joins other theories in viewing consciousness as the production of a highly integrated and widespread corticothalamic, sometimes we'll call that CT, a corticothalamic loop or corticothalamic activity, This follows a long trail of evidence on corticothalamic loops. So GWT, GWD is focused on the entire cerebral cortex um, and doesn't just partition the cortex into static prefrontal and posterior parts. So rather the CT system acts as a unified oscillatory machine. So they're both static and these growth anatomical divisions are superseded by the dynamical connectome of the cortex. So we're going to get into a bit of what all of that that I just said means. So GWT, GWD accounts for an extensive body of evidence and is consistent with a wide range of of theories that have been developed by other philosophers and and scientists, which include Edelman's neural Darwinism, Freeman and Cosma's neurodynamics, Tononi and Cox information integration theory, or IIT, Dehane and Shenzhou's global neuronal workspace theory, Meshuridal and the functional dynamics of Deco, Vidor, and Kringlebach, which we'll get into today. So in this episode, 
We're going to start by discussing a 2013 paper by Bernie and his colleagues um, that start to get at GWD, how global work-based theory might work in the brain. And then we're going to move on and start to discuss three other papers and point out plausible ways in which these different pieces of neural evidence connect to and converge on global workspace theory and how this plays out in the actual neural dynamics of the brain. Yeah, and as Aaliyah said, uh, we will begin with Bernie's paper uh, with co-authors from uh, 2013, and it's called Global Workspace Dynamics, Cortical Bindings and Propagation Enables Consciousness Contents. So that paper, from what I understand, is the result of four decades of cumulative work and is important for our immediate discussion because it pulls all the strands together, at least as of 2013. And it also describes Freeman and Cosma as a possible solution to the question of consciousness limited capacity. And one of the other papers we'll also talk about is the Gaillard et al. paper that is the best empirical confirmation of the major global workspace hypothesis or namely the sensory consciousness that involves a multi-source convergence in the visual cortex, at least for visual stimuli, and which then broadcasts or ignites from high levels of the classical visual cortex around the infotemporal and the mediotemporal lobe, which is also known as the hippocampus. Awesome. Okay, so we're going to start by jumping into this discussion of Bernie's 2013 paper. So Ilian gave us a really nice kind of summary of, of what this paper talks about. And one of the key observations supporting GWT um, and one of the key things, Bernie, that you bring up a lot in this paper is the idea of widespread integration and broadcasting. So this large scale of coordinated brain activity during conscious experience. So can you just talk to us a little bit, Bernie, about what does this idea or this term widespread integration and broadcasting actually mean in terms of the brain and brain activity? Yeah, I want to connect this to the experiences we are all having at this very moment. We all have a stream of consciousness, and the stream of consciousness was described by William James in the Principles of Psychology in 1890, uh, in pretty much the way that I think we all share it. And you can make up your own mind whether you share William James's stream of consciousness or not. I personally do, I think. Uh, in fact, uh, William James's brother, Henry James, was a very famous, still is, a very famous novelist in what was called the stream of consciousness tradition. So it's really important to understand that what we are doing here is not something totally new and different, something that human beings have never been able to talk about before. There are all these really distinguished historical traditions, in, and we call them humanities, or we call them the arts, or we call them philosophy, but that doesn't matter, or spirituality for that matter, because the key thing is that every item in your consciousness, everything that you can point to and label is likely to be a combination of ingredients. So if you're looking at a word, for example, a printed word, you are probably echoing it to yourself in your own mind. 
And that means that two different sources of information are coming together. You are seeing the word consciousness on a screen, and you are saying the word consciousness to yourself at that very time, or maybe a second later, something like that. And so the idea that uh, consciousness is involved with combining multiple sources, the major senses, for example, the five major senses, which are now about a dozen major senses, I think, but it doesn't matter. We keep on discovering more. So things come together, and the original thoughts historically were that, you know, maybe there was a, a cave, Plato's cave, where things would come together. And Plato believed, of course, that the cave was delusional and that it reflected prisoners who were bound and lying down on the bottom of the cave, and they saw, saw the shadows of people passing in front of a big fire projected on a wall, very much like a movie theater. And that combined different things, because Plato and Aristotle, who uh, Plato was Aristotle's mentor, and they talked with each other. These people talked endlessly with each other. And it turns out now that they also communicated with India and China and many other faraway places. So, so you have to think in terms of this World Wide Web, but before electronics, and still these traders and raiders and thugs and, and uh, nice people come together and talk about things and try to bring it all together. It's something very human. The broadcasting part is really comes from thinking about the brain in a way as an enormously large city. Uh, and the city has many, many different neighborhoods. And some of them are highly specialized. You've got your financial sector, you've got your industrial sector, you've got your transportation sector, and so on. And the brain has been compared to that for a very long time, to a great city. But what we're really talking about here is the dynamics of the city. And that you can think of as traffic waves of automobile traffic or electronic traffic, for that matter, waves and waves and waves that are constantly running back and forth between different parts of the city. And then the question is, can we pinpoint the part of the traffic wave? And let's say this is morning rush hour. And so this is traffic wave coming from the suburbs to the center of the city or to the industrial area. And it's that peak of the traffic wave that is, in a sense, the dynamic global workspace where things come together and things are also spread out to all the component parts of the brain. I think one of the, um, the first metaphors that got me to, to start to understand this idea of, of specificity and, integ and integration um, that you're kind of talking here with like the specific parts of the city that do their specific job, but the integration with the traffic moving between them was the um, metaphor in Tononi and Edelman's uh, Universe of Consciousness, where they talk about the metaphor of an orchestra. And, and for me as a musician, that really made a lot of sense where they're talking about 
you know, imagine a, an orchestra of people playing a violin or Bernie as you play a cello and they're all playing their own individual pieces. And then imagine you attach a string to their elbows and start to pull the string. So they're each moving their bow still in this unique kind of specific way. But as you pull the string that connects all of their elbows, there starts to be an integration or flow of the rhythm of these different unique pieces. I think that's another nice metaphor that ties back to the city. So in Bernie's city metaphor or the orchestra metaphor, we have this idea of there being kind of unique, specific spaces or areas that do a specific job, but that the information is shared between these and that there's some sort of integration or flow. So kind of trying to move from the world of metaphor to the more concrete world of the brain. Bernie, I'm going to share a slide with you here. And briefly for our listeners um, who don't have this slide, this is a picture from, I believe it's from Bernie's book. Yes. Yes. Which I have right here. We have on consciousness. So this is Bernie's latest magnum opus on the consciousness. And what we see here is a image of the brain where we're looking at different brain regions. So we have frontal brain, central sulcus, posterior, the thalamus, and the interconnection between these regions. So the specificity and this integration. Um, so Bernie, can you kind of take us maybe out of the world of metaphor a little bit and into, okay, what does this look like in the brain. Right. That's exactly the right question. And here we now are, are talking about the frontier because nobody knows the full answer today. And there's some very interesting ideas floating around. And I'm always more inclined to want to combine things because I learn from that rather than become too competitive or too highly differentiated. Both differentiation and integration are important in understanding these things, of course. And then very often we get too scattered. So what we're looking at is the cortex, and the cortex is the crown of the brain. It is the outer crust of the brain, technically speaking. And of course, you know that from hundreds of pictures these days, it looks like a kind of a, a helmet a shape that is inside of your skull. And the back of the helmet is the occipital cortex, and it, that's all part of the posterior, the rear half of cortex. And then there is a, a gap, or what looks like a gap in this image, called the central sulcus, and sulcus really means valley, or fold in the brain. And the way we're looking at it right now, the central sulcus seems to come back right extreme down, come down right in the middle of the way we're looking at the brain right now from the left-hand side. And then in front of this central sulcus, we talk about the motor cortex, finally the frontal cortex, and then in front of the front, we have the pre frontal cortex. And those words are a little bit confusing because they are historical terms and they very often come from Latin or from some other language and so on. In this particular image, it looks as if this structure called the thalamus, which is kind of an egg shape, 
uh, whether uh, the thalamus looks like it's right in the middle, so that if we become too concrete with our metaphors, we would say that the thalamus looks like central station. That's where everything comes together, and that's where everything is broadcast from. And that is wrong, but it is such a tempting idea, especially when you look with the naked eye at the brain. The thalamus looks like it must be at the center of things because our gross vision doesn't really see the little threads of neurons that are really making up the information processing structure of the brains. So we have to go to a smaller level of analysis to the microscopic, or these days the nanoscopic uh, level of analysis. And we have to think about this like the city where we cannot really see the, uh, the electrical wires or the telephone connections or whatever you have in the city that connects point to point. To do that, we need to see it more finely, but then we can zoom out again and see how this very beautiful structure seems to emerge from that egg in the middle, the thalamus, so that in the back of the head, we have uh, purple lines, and that stands for mostly vision. That's called the visual projection area to the cortex, because after all, we're all talking about cortex here. And then in the middle, we have both the body sense, the external body sense, called the somatosensory cortex, and right in front of it is the motor cortex, uh, which, and both of those look like little, kind of distorted little human beings. And so they were called homunculi, or little men, by the people who discovered it. So there's one for the body senses, and particularly the outer sense of our bodies, the touch, outer touch, and a very, very similar one that has to do with voluntary muscular control. I will repeat that. It's voluntary, it's muscular, and it has to do with control. So the back of that area, the sensory motor one, is the sensory and very conscious components, so somebody touches your hand, you can feel it, that's your somatosensory cortex, and then you wiggle your finger, and you're commanding your fingers to be triggered by your motor cortex. Well, in front of all that, there is the frontal third of the cortex, and in front of the frontal third, there is perhaps the most important executive region of cortex, and that is called prefrontal. And I still find that really confusing. Why did they make it that way? They should change it, but they're not going to. So it's frontal, and then front of the front is called prefrontal. And the thalamus, which looks like it's in the middle, is in fact a way station. That's where cortical neurons come in, send their fibers into the thalamus, and then the thalamus bounces them back in various ways. So the thalamus is not the functional center of the cortex. It just looks like that to the naked eye. Mm, right. So when I was learning about the thalamus, I kind of learned about it as a relay station. 
and kind of summarize all of that, basically what we're seeing is all of these regions of the cortex that are involved in these diverse functions, like the prefrontal cortex being involved in executive control, the motor cortex and somatosensory cortex being involved in body sense and body control, the occipital cortex being involved in vision, if we're just kind of talking about the senses here, all of them have projections to the thalamus and the thalamus has projections back out to these cortical regions. So that's where we get this term corticothalamic cortical loops because it truly is this bi-directional loop of information. Is that a good summary, Bernie? Yes, it's, it's very good. Currently, of course, now that we all know about the World Wide Web, that becomes a, a well-understood metaphor for most of us. And the World Wide Web does not have a center. It may have a traffic center at any point of the day, usually when people are waking up, I suppose. But actually, I think the companies probably sell their ability to use the web during the times when you and I are asleep. And sleep, by the way, and waking are both really important questions in this connection. Yeah, I think we'll have to have an episode on, on sleep and waking specifically. Right. In any case, the World Wide Web does not have a certain center, one place, it's New York or it's New Delhi, some place where everything has to go through there and everything is controlled from there. It's not that kind of system, but it's a system that has a dynamic center. And that is part of the major point that we are all trying to understand these days. Yeah, the, the idea of a dynamical center. So briefly for our listeners, you can find these images in Bernie's book, and they're also discussed on Bernie's website, which is bernardbars.com. That's B-E-R-N-A-R-D-B-A-A-R-S.com. And On Consciousness is Bernie's book. So if you are listening but don't have the images, you can find them there. So Bernie, I think this kind of moves us on to... Um, I mean, we talked a little bit about, about corticothalamic loops and the function of those in the brain. Why corticothalamic loops? Why, what about the structure, function, and connectivity of the CT circuit makes it relevant to global workspace theory? I think you started to touch on that with this idea of, of dynamical hubs or dynamical centers, but let's kind of talk about that concretely, of why these CT circuits or CTC loops are relevant to global workspace theory um, in terms of the brain? Well, Alia, the answer is, in a sense, that nobody fully knows the answer. I like that answer. <laughs> yes, exactly, because that's what science is about. It's about understanding what you don't understand and trying to kind of hone in on it and understanding more and more and more. And then you come up with paradoxes which are baffling and the CT circuit or the CT corticothalamic loops are all over the place in the cortex. Most of the cortex is filled with the fibers of these corticothalamic loops. And the puzzle is that if you're a good engineer, you will not believe this because it doesn't make any engineering sense. And the reason why is that uh, the connectivity of the cortex goes from excitatory neuron to excitatory neuron and back again. 
And that upsets all the good engineers because everybody knows that if you put a microphone next to a loudspeaker and you get just a tiny little sound coming uh, into, and there's almost some background sound, uh, kind of whispering background sound, it gets amplified by going through the microphone to the loudspeaker and then gets fed again into the microphone. It's called a positive feedback loop, which is a little confusing, but it really means it's an accelerating thing. So if you ever hear the result, it sounds like a howl, and it gets louder and louder and louder until something blows up in the circuit. And the electrical engineers a long time ago, realizing this, they built in circuit breakers. And so if you're lucky, most of the time, you can't do this experiment for yourself because you'll blow up all your wonderful audio equipment. But this is a puzzle, and it's a genuine puzzle. I do not want to claim that there is a definitive answer to this. It's a very important question because if it's not solved by biology over the last 200 million years or whatever it is, if it hasn't been solved by biology, then you would blow your brain up every time you had a thought, a conscious thought, because it's the conscious thoughts that get combined and broadcast. And there are very interesting theories right now, hypotheses that are quite beautiful, very uh, mathematically interesting. And I do not think we have the full answer yet. Right. So as you're talking about that, and we'll kind of get into this as we move on and touch on the other papers, you know, it came to mind this idea of broadcast and build, that if we're talking about the spotlight of consciousness, right, that we're trying to bring a small piece of our mental experience to conscious awareness, that might be a circumstance in which having this positive feedback loop where one signal gets amplified and amplified and amplified, broadcast and built, right? And like... yes that might be an advantageous situation. So I wanna get into the, some of the specific neural evidence related to this kind of amplification, this, this spreading and amplification of certain signals. But first I actually wanna pass, pass the mic to, to Ilian, um, cause I know he had a few questions burning on your 2013 paper and I wanna hear what he has to Good. say on that. Yeah, I, 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 indeed I did. And I wanna start with first, you talk about how the empirical theories that try to defined consciousness are divided in localist and local global types. Can you talk about the difference between the two and in which category does global workspace theory fit? A global workspace theory uh, tries to relate local to global. And then you have to deal with the fact that, let's say we have visual consciousness and we can study visual consciousness, but then our subjects who have minds of their own, you know, people sitting in a laboratory being tested are not exactly completely controlled by whatever the experimenter wants. They do whatever they want. They, they think back, you know, to the latest fight they had with their girlfriend or boyfriend or lover or, or hater or, or whatever. They think back to the most important things in their lives. They're not interested primarily in being subjects in this silly experiment. So one thought comes to mind and gets broadcast conceptually, and then the visual scene comes to mind and that gets broadcast conceptually. And it's been really understood for 25 centuries at least that if 
consciousness is an integrative capacity, then we have to also explain why uh, these different contents of consciousness, the musical melody that just came into your head, for example, or the echo of uh, something I, I just said or one of us just said comes into your head for some reason that nobody really knows, or some beautiful abstract thought, if you happen to be a mathematician, comes into your head. And all those things involve different parts of your cortex. And we have a reasonable guess about the visual part, which is the back of the brain, the occipital cortex. And then perhaps we have a self-regulation problem. We get too happy uh, listening to this podcast, and we just can't control our happiness. Uh, so either we burst out laughing or we have to exercise some self-control. And that would be the prefrontal cortex kicking in and telling all the other sources to shut up and, you know, let the vision be heard. It's, it's a kind of a, a committee. It's a kind of a congress or parliament, if you wish. Or it's a kind of World Wide Web where different voices can come in at different times and if you look at young babies who are just learning to crawl, if your impression is like mine, and we try to mind read our little infants just learning to crawl, they always look confused, or at times they will look confused. Sometimes they're heading for that big red plastic ball, and then sometimes they half stand up in, in their diapers, and they look around, and they don't seem to be clear on what to do. And the plausible reason for that, of course, is that uh, little babies don't have all this self-regulatory apparatus that adults uh, build into their brains. Babies are supposed to be curious. They're supposed to take in lots of information and not get too rigidly fixated on just one thing. So that's kind of the background of our consciousness and one of my favorite experiments actually is, you can do this at home, and I really think everybody should do this at home because it's a very, very simple experiment when you're falling asleep and you're feeling drowsy and you're just kind of trying to keep track of your mature, adult, rational, sensible thoughts, right? And it keeps on going very, very rational, and then at some point, your head falls down if you're sitting up, or your arm falls down, or you drop an object that you had in your hands because your muscles are suddenly turning flaccid. They are being inhibited. That's the moment when you're falling asleep. And it's really important, if you can, to be aware of what happens to your consciousness in that crucial moment. And I'll tell you about my consciousness in that crucial moment. I go haywire. I get into dream-like states, and I start seeing visual images that are kind of taking off by themselves, and I'm no longer in control. And usually when I'm awake, I'm, I'm not a great visual imager. I'm not a painter or an artist or anything like that. Uh, so my waking images are not very vivid, but the very second when I fall into a dream, suddenly I become, you know, a visual genius. 
It all takes off, but of course, I'm not in control anymore. That's an important moment of the day if you're interested in consciousness. All right. Um, Ilian, did you have another question you wanted to touch on there, or should we move on to the next piece? Well, since we're talking about dreaming and waking states, I also want to make the association with the corticotalamical connections or loops that we've been talking about. So from my what I understand from this conversation is that those regions, the cortex and the thalamus, are highly important and involved in conscious processes. How do we measure that? What kind of experiments have we made to give evidence that supports this claim? Yeah, that's exactly the right question. That's sometimes called the question of introspection. And introspection just means looking at yourself, looking at your consciousness internally. And the introspection used to be extremely controversial for the last hundred years, but it actually turns out to be a very commonplace thing that we all do. If you're looking at a traffic light uh, going from red to to yellow to green, you can introspect. That is to say, you can simply say, I saw the traffic light just turn red. And that is an introspective report. And so the word introspection has gotten discredited. It's gotten smeared. And I think incorrectly, because everything we know about the sensory systems, the big five sensory systems that have been studied now for two centuries, everything we know about those sensory systems comes from introspections. So we have very delicate experiments, have been doing them for 200 years, comparing the color, a little red dot, let's say, on a screen, and then comparing that to a little orange dot and asking the question, well, of our subject, can you see the difference? And then maybe people can adjust the difference with a a rotating knob to see at which point the orange dot and the red dot comes indistinguishable. That's very useful because that has led for the last two centuries to all the audio and video and touch electronic tools that you are probably using at this very moment. I have a little earphone in my left ear and it has a a diaphragm that vibrates. And that vibration that in turn pushes the vibrations of my eardrum, which in turn push three little bones, which in turn vibrate a big surface, which is essentially a harp. It's a fleshy harp that we all have inside of each inner ear. And that kicks off a set of neurons. Uh, So what you're hearing right now is the neurons in your inner ear communicating with your cortex and coming from air vibrations. That was all worked out uh, since 1800, roughly. And so it is simply not true to say that we cannot study sensory consciousness. Now, there's other aspects of consciousness like higher states and LSD experiences, for example, that are really, really hard to study. So it's not that everything is easy, but the sensory systems, the big five, are quite well studied and engineers who build uh, microphones and loudspeakers 
don't even bother to do the research anymore because they can just look it up in their handbook to see how loudly your amplifier should sound under certain, certain inputs. I want to encourage everybody, if possible, to engage in as much introspection as you can uh, without, you know, falling off uh, the subway platform or anything else, but just engage in this wonderful, lush inner world that we are all entitled to visit. Yeah, I think that that's, um, that really touches on some of what we were talking about um, before we, we started recording around the importance of the subjective perspective and kind of that subjective truths or experiences actually give us a really good window into, in particular, consciousness. And that, like you said, while sometimes when we think of consciousness, we want to think of the general what is consciousness in terms of these altered states, whether it's sleeping and dreaming or whether it's altered states with hallucinogenics um, or meditation. But and those those are really difficult questions to study in terms of consciousness with maybe like a big C, right? Like, con- you know, human consciousness. But in terms of pieces that we can measure if our hand is touched and we feel it or we don't feel it, if we see a word on a screen and we read it or it flashes too quickly for us to see it, those pieces where we have some sort of external stimuli and someone can subjectively report on whether they experienced it or not, that can give us a really good window into, as you say, sensory consciousness. And that actually really springs us into some of the current evidence. So I just want to touch on for our listeners, you know, I know for me, um, like I said, I study compassion, um, I study meditation as part of that. And so I get questions all the time that I think are incredibly interesting and also aren't within the tools that we have to measure them. And I think that consciousness is, is part of this too. It can get a bad rap as not being studyable because there are certain aspects of consciousness that we don't have the tools to measure. And that's okay. There can be these big, either unanswerable or future questions, but there are some aspects of it that we do have the tools to answer, particularly around, like Bernie said, the big five, and that would be the five senses. So sight, touch, smell, sound. What am I missing, Bernie? Uh, Taste. Taste. Oh, of course, taste. I love food. Um, and and okay. the other one, by the way, that everybody misses is the insular cortex, which, which is represents very important. very important, as you're saying, which represents gut feelings, uh, but especially emotional gut feelings, also feelings of nausea, of course, th- feelings like that. But the impulsive uh, emotions that I think, especially children tend to have, because as adults, of course, what we do is we push that stuff under the rug so we don't have to cope with it too much. But adults can indeed experience their inner emotional experiences, and we now know where that emerges into consciousness, and it's sort of in the armpit of the temporal lobe. When you so the insula the- for our listeners is underneath the temporal lobe, so if you have Underneath your temples, on the side of your head, is a temporal lobe. And if you were to take a, a fork, <laughs> it's a terrible implement, maybe a scalpel, yes. something, and lift the temporal lobe up, underneath it is this region called the insula. And this is highly connected to the inner viscera of our body, so to our internal organs. Um, it monitors our internal homeostasis. 
state. So when Bernie's talking about the insula and this gut feeling, there's the metaphorical sense of a gut sense of something, but there's also the very literal sense of this, this region is wired to our internal viscera and that there's information that we're getting from and about our internal bodily state that we often maybe consider gut feelings or intuition that reaches consciousness at some level, maybe in a nonverbal state, but that actually is information about what's going on in our body and our emotional state, which is super important, a really interesting area of research. So you can go on, Bernie. Just wanted to give that little primer. Yeah, let, let me get back to the question you were previously raising and I was missing. What happened for almost all of human history, as far as I understand it, and obviously I don't understand all of human history, but the part that I know, people really had trouble with the idea of understanding even sensory consciousness, and that was because they did not have natural comparison conditions. And one of the things that happens in science that people outside of science often do not understand is that you start to ask about something that is now supposed to be obvious if you take in high school physics, which is that there's such a thing as atmospheric pressure. Atmospheric pressure seems obvious to us because we've, you know, we've passed the high school exam and we know there is such a thing and it's about 14 and a half pounds per square inch of skin that we all experience, except of course that we don't experience it at all. And so the question I, I like to ask is, suppose you're a child and you're playing on the beach and you're inside of a, a nice protective cove uh, so that you're not getting any direct sense of wind coming in. And now let's suppose you're 10 years old, so you're, you're getting up there, you're getting smart. And you ask a child, did you realize that there are 14 and a half pounds pressing on your skin, every square inch of your skin? And a sensible child would say, go away, don't bother me. That is nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. And it's true. It doesn't make any sense. And scientifically, it never made any sense until about, what, 1800, uh, when scientists really started to think about this very seriously. And they started to have vacuum tubes, for example, where you could pull out the air and see what happened in the vacuum, basically. And they started to take mercury columns and run them up a mountain, 10,000 feet, let's say. And the higher you get, of course, the lower the atmospheric pressure turns out to be. So the idea of atmosphere, atmospheric pressure kind of emerged out of the fuzz you know, because our thinking about those things was really very fuzzy. You could see atmospheric pressure, of course, if you ran into a storm at sea, but you would think, oh, the storm is just coming from the northeast. There's not necessarily atmospheric pressure coming from 65 miles above Earth. So atmospheric pressure, I think, is a good example because we ran into the same problem with consciousness. And the question with consciousness was, what's the comparison condition? Because if you go to sleep and lose consciousness, you can't observe anything anymore, right? And if you try to observe what's really happening in your consciousness when you're awake, you will get distracted and you won't be able to do the task. And so in psychology experiments, what we do is we get people in very, very picky tasks that are so trivial 
that people won't get too distracted when they report, you know, the orange dot versus the red dot. And then a miracle occurred, and uh, people discovered unconscious brain processes. And now it turns out, after many years of research and debate and argument and so on, still going on, uh, what we know is that the connectivities of the cortex, the synapses and the fibers that connect things to each other, that they are the elements that store memories. And that includes exact copies of something that you may be conscious of at this very moment, so that your brain, your conscious brain, is really recording the incoming information with tremendous accuracy, but it won't help you on the high school exam, unfortunately, because high school exams are fiendishly designed to challenge people to recall things. And so you give people a hint on the exam and you expect them to come up with a whole answer, but that's not how the brain works. The brain preferentially works by recognition. So if you're an animal in a natural environment and it's very dangerous and you're acutely aware of the smells and the tastes of the various places, you, you lick the lower parts of the bushes and find out which predator has been peeing on this bush in the last 24 hours. And then your brain figures out, oh, we had a lot of dew this morning. So this must be diluted urine from the local tomcat, which is probably watching me right now if I'm a mouse. So I better get underground quick and scream loud so all the mice, mice will realize that they better stay, stay down until the, the cat goes away. Anyway, so that's, the, that's what natural animals encounter. They encounter familiar odors or odors that are associated with snakes and dangerous animals because most very small uh, mammals die uh, within three months. So they don't live very long and, and these are life or death decisions. And they have to be made in an in a instant where you can't necessarily consciously process all of that information, which I think gets into maybe one of your core points of, of feelings of knowing, this kind of general sense and how we're integrating the information. So I'm going to share, are you seeing the areas of cortex slide here? Or are you seeing EEG? I'm, I'm seeing the, the starbursts, one, yes. two, three. So, Bernie, before we move on to the next paper, this is one of, of your slides and you know, relates to this kind of feelings of knowing, this sense of, of knowledge and the subjective right. sense. Can you describe this for us a little bit to kind of sum up all of this that we've been talking about and then we'll get into more of some of the specific evidence? Yes, this is the fundamental idea of global workspace capacities in the actual brain, in the cortex. And at the beginning, we have a starburst superimposed on the occipital cortex, and that's for visual experiences. And then we hop up a little bit and get a starburst number two, and that is, uh, that's actually also a lot of vision, but also audition and other senses. And then we move all the way to the front and look at the starburst in the frontal cortex, and there we get something completely different. It's not a sensory event, it is a feeling of knowing. 
And I have learned to pay attention to my feelings of knowing, and it took a long time because I wasn't taking any literature classes, or at least not enough literature classes, because people in the arts and literature and the humanities probably learn about feelings of knowing. If you're watching a scary movie, you get the doomy music, you know, showing up at some point, and it goes boom, boom, and you don't even see anything, right? But you know something scary is going to happen, and that's a feeling of knowing. And feelings of knowing, the more you think about them, the more you realize how common they are. You are probably having many feelings of knowing right now, and you're not even labeling them because they are so much part of yourself, uh, sense of self. So they're really, really important, and they're also very much neglected even today. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in terms of, of consciousness, it seems to me that these feelings of knowing are perhaps the, the conscious tip of the iceberg for this huge amount of unconscious processing that's going on of, of all of this information in our environment, where maybe I couldn't tell you why I know there's danger, but I know, right? Same for the animal that you were talking about. So I think that this is a, a really interesting piece where some of what arises to our consciousness, this just felt sense of knowing, we have access to the knowing, but we maybe don't have access to all of the different pieces of information that are being integrated to result in this emergent sense. Would you say that's fair? I think that's exactly right. And that's the puzzle. That's the kind of the introspective difficulty. But people in literature, poets especially, artists, uh, and everyday people who are very intuitive, many of them, academic language is not necessarily the natural language for most people in the world. People have intuitions, and they're very, very good intuitions very often. We, we tend to look down on people who don't talk academic jargon, but the fact is that they, are, they have something better, which is their intuitions, their feelings of knowing, the fact that they know exactly how to handle this drill saw or this other dangerous tool, because if they didn't know how to use it, they wouldn't survive. So people learn all kinds of things that turn into feelings of knowing. And that's really a big piece of what we're, we're trying to understand, where we study sensory consciousness to start to give us a window into this broader way of knowing the world. You know, and science is a tool to help us uh, start to unpack that, but it's not necessarily, like you said, the answer or it doesn't necessarily have all the answers now, but that doesn't delegitimize those experiences. So I think what we can kind of get into is starting to segue into this idea of conscious access. So I'm going to pull up our next paper here. So I believe it's pronounced Gaillard. Um, Gaillard. Gaillard. So it's a 2009 paper that's looking at conscious access and looking at the brain correlates of a conscious versus unconscious experience. So I'm going to briefly kind of talk about some of the methods they use, and then I'd love for us all to talk about together how this relates to sensory consciousness and to our understanding of global workspace theory. So briefly for our listeners, um, this paper used something called intracranial recording. So normally when you do electroencephalography, 
you are recording at the scalp and you have electrodes that are placed on the scalp and you're getting this kind of complex combination of brain activity, muscle activity, and there's also the issue of your brain is like this bowl of jelly. So you see um, a signal generated in one place, but your brain is a fantastic conductor. And so it immediately propagates across your whole brain. And it's very challenging to work out where this signal is coming from. It's called the inverse problem. So one really cool method, and this isn't to knock EEG, I use EEG, I think is a super useful tool. But another tool that can be used in patients who are undergoing brain surgery is something called intracranial recording, where the electrodes are actually placed directly on their cortex because their heads are already open for a surgery. So that is the, the technique that this paper used. So we're going to talk about some plausible areas of convergence between the evidence they found in this paper and global workspace theory. So they used a, a paradigm here that's masked versus unmasked words. So that basically means that a word is flashed on the screen for a very short period of time. And then there's another visual mask that's presented. So for those of you who can see the screen, this is panel B. For those of you who can't, what we have on the screen here is basically a, um, it's a figure from this 2009 paper that shows the masking versus unmasked paradigm. So in both cases, a word is flashed very quickly, um, but there is a phenomenon that we see in visual perception, where if you flash a word quickly and then you put something else after it, the quickly flashed word is never perceived. It's kind of overridden by what you see after. So some of these words were presented masked, and some of them were presented unmasked, where it was flashed, but the participants were allowed to see it. And what they found, there are a number of really interesting findings in this paper, but the core one that we're going to focus on today is what happened across the brain for these different electrodes, which you can see here in panel A, for the list people who are listening but not able to, to see this, panel A is basically just a... Um, a depiction of where these electrodes were placed to record brain activity. And what we see is this propagation of the signal. So on the screen here, we have a number of plots for different areas of the cortex. So we have frontal cortex, parietal cortex, temporal cortex, and occipital cortex. And in a light blue line, we see the proportion of significant electrodes. So electrodes showing a significant change in their activity. And then the voltage power, so kind of the surge in this brain activity over time, averaged across these electrodes in these different regions. So in a light blue line, we see a masked effect. And in a dark blue line, we see an unmasked effect. So when these words that were presented were masked, we see kind of a brief peak in activity in the occipital cortex that dies off fairly quickly. Not much of anything in the frontal cortex. Little summing parietal and temporal cortex and cortices. However, when it's unmasked, what we actually see is, first of all, a, great, a much greater immediate peak, but then we also see continued activity. And we see that the biggest peak in the occipital cortex that actually then appears to spread across time to the temporal, parietal, and then frontal cortex. And the only difference here, right, because there's visual stimuli on the screen the whole time in both cases, so the only difference is that in one condition, a word was allowed to be consciously perceived, and in the other, it was not. It was flashed, but not consciously perceived. So the difference is the conscious processing of this verbal stimuli. 
so Bernie, how do you see these findings, um, this observed, observed effect of longer lasting and this more widespread brain activity during conscious perception of a word? How does that offer support to global workspace theory? How does that relate? Yeah, this is a beautiful experiment done by a French laboratory at their National Science Foundation, essentially, in Paris. And I have to mention the biggest contributors. That would be Stanislas Dahan and Jean-Pierre Changeux, who have directed this research program now for, it must be 30 years by now. And science is a very hard thing to do it properly. Indeed. Uh, takes, a, <laughs> takes a lot of work. So Dahan and Changeux have worked on this for decades, and now they have perfected this technique very, very beautifully uh, so that we can see these extremely short visual events. One of them is conscious, and the other one is identical optically, meaning that the visual, that the light going into the eye is exactly the same, but in one case it's conscious, in the other case, it's not. So now we have a prediction because we claim that the conscious version will be broadcast, right? Whereas the unconscious version will activate parts of the visual brain, but it will not be broadcast. And that is exactly what they observed in a very beautiful way. And you've got these electrodes sitting on the cortex itself, and you had just exquisite precision, just the best kind of precision almost that we can achieve today. So this is a very important experiment. It was done in 2009, but this experimental approach has been building up now for two or three decades. There's been work in monkeys, there's been work in humans, and I think we have gained tremendous amounts of insight from all this. And when we talk, by the way, about genuine big discoveries, you can never forget how much work went into that and how much blood, sweat, and tears people, you know, had to go through for years and years before it ever got to that point. And I think the, we owe them a lot of gratitude. Absolutely. Yeah. And kind of for our listeners, I want to give kind of a concrete sense of this idea of like broadcast and amplify or broadcast and build. So if we're looking at these plots, you know, when Bernie says broadcast, it you can see actually the signal propagating from occipital cortex, which would be the primary sensory cortex for visual stimuli, which this picture or these which words, visual words presented on the screen are, right? And so we see the response and a, a louder response or a bigger response in occipital cortex. And then we kind of look at the time delay and can see it spreading across association cortices into the frontal cortex over time. Um, so when we say broadcast, it's really this idea of the signal kind of spreading. Yeah, Bernie, is that is that correct? Of this very yes, concrete that's idea? exactly correct. And I should say that we don't know exactly what it is that happened. What we do know is that we have, when we have two matched stimuli, and it could be auditory, it could be visual, it could be all kinds of things, and one of them is masked, so it's really unconscious, but the same physical 
event is happening to our sensory systems, when we compare those two conditions, the conscious one is always bigger, it has more resonance, and it spreads out farther. And so now the question becomes, what the hell does that mean? What's the effect? What is it? And this is really asking, you know, what is it? What's really happening when we become conscious of right. one thing rather than something else? Right. And we see this kind of enhancement of signal. So I think actually that kind of, obviously it's not fully doing this paper justice. There are a lot of other analyses that they that go into, but I think for the moment, you know, kind of the broad point of this widespread and longer lasting and louder brain response in the the case of a conscious stimuli, we see this echoed across a number of other empirical papers. So another paper we have is Herman et al. Um, that we thought was interesting to look at. This is a 2019 paper. And so what we see here is they're specifically looking at power in the gamma band. And so I'm going to briefly talk about different frequency bands because we're going to get into this. I'll maybe stop my share and show my face. So when we're talking about electrocortical activity or we're talking about any sort of frequency of oscillation, things can oscillate at different frequencies. So a low frequency oscillation is kind of low and slow. Um, these are in the brain delta waves. These are very prominent during sleep. So it's basically a more stretched out sine wave. And then as we get into higher frequencies, they're kind of more condensed, pushed together. So the highest frequency range that we talk about in the brain is the gamma frequencies. These are very kind of tightly spaced sine waves if we're looking at the shape that this makes. We could get into the neurophysiology of that, but I think to understand this paper, we just need to understand that in terms of brain activity, we see these assemblies of neurons communicating or oscillating at different frequencies. And the gamma band and the beta band, which are these two frequency bands, because we group these oscillations into bands, seem to be showing up a lot in this research. Um, Bernie, do you want to kind of talk any more about, about frequency bands or oscillations that you think yeah, would be useful uh, to understand this? Well, the simple analogy, and it's actually a pretty good analogy, is to AM radio and FM radio and similar carrier frequencies, they're called which are sine waves, basically, that are sent out by your cell phone, for example, and your cell phone makes contact with the nearest cell phone tower. And when you talk into your cell phone, what happens is that the frequency on which you're broadcasting to the tower is being modulated. And that means that your voice rides on top of the carrier frequency. And then your cell phone tower can decode that by essentially stripping off everything but the carrier frequency. And of course, that was worked out in the early days of radio, uh, maybe around 1900 or maybe a little bit before 1900. So it's been around for more than 100 years. And the principles are very well understood. And what we do not know fully at this point, although there's a lot of work going on, is precisely what, is there such a thing as a carrier wave? We have to be careful about this. In the brain, it certainly looks like alpha, for example, which is 8 to 12 cycles per second, may well be a carrier wave in the brain, and it has biological functions. We know that. 
and the theta, which is a little bit lower than alpha, and so on. The big one, uh, or rather the high one, is gamma, and I think these days people are probably distinguishing between upper gamma and lower gamma and all that. The, all these uh, Greek names, by the way, the Greek letter names, alpha, beta, gamma, and so on, uh, they're completely arbitrary, and all they reflect is which was discovered first. <laughs> but then, as soon as you assign a Greek letter to a certain frequency band, then everybody knows what you're talking about, and then you can go to the next one and the next one and the next one. So I do not know if the frequency spectrum is fully known yet, but we know a great deal of it. And I should also say that when you're talking about frequency modulation or amplitude modulation or phase modulation, which is another one, we are not sure which of those is really going on, or maybe I should say all of those seem to be going on to some extent. So yeah. this is a process of discovery, and we never fully understand things until we get the evidence, of course. Of course. And, and for our listeners, you know, Bernie just mentioned phase, frequency, and amplitude. So when we're talking about amplitude, these are all different aspects of a wave. So the frequency, like we talked about, is kind of how tight or spread out this wave is, kind of the distance horizontally between two peaks. When we're talking about amplitude, that's the distance vertically between a peak and a trough. So how tall this wave is. So you could have a wave of the same frequency that has higher or lower amplitude. And then when we're talking about phase, we're talking about where in the wave. Are we at the peak? Are we on the down? Are we on the up? Where in the wave we are? I mean, these are all different ways that we can look at brain activity. But because math, <laughs> we can't know everything about a sine wave or everything about these waves at once. So we do something called a fast Fourier or a Fourier transformation to transform this complex wave of brain activity, right? Because when we record it, we don't just get just the alpha wave or just the beta wave or just the gamma wave. We get this complex wave. And so we actually transform it and decompose it into these different frequency bands. But as part of that, you know, we lose, we lose certain pieces of information. So when we're, we're talking about these different waves, we're talking about a complex waveform that has been decomposed into these component bands. So talking about this next paper, where you know, understanding a little bit about what we mean when we say gamma frequency, which as a reminder, this is the highest frequency that we currently talk about in the brain. Although, you know, like Bernie said, there are, are likely other frequencies that the brain is oscillating at, but kind of canonically, traditionally, this is the, the highest in the range of frequency bands. So in this paper, and again, we're talking about this Herman et al. 2019 paper, um, this is another study of visual perception. So this is another direct recording paper. And what they did is they showed um, people faces. And these faces were just at your visual threshold. So different people have different visual thresholds, but they were tuned to individuals' visual threshold. At what point does a visual stimuli show you cross the line from not perceived to perceived? So they presented these faces at people's visual threshold. And then they looked at the difference between faces that were perceived and faces that were not perceived. And in both perceived and not perceived faces, they found 
initial activation in the visual cortex, right? So the visual cortex is saying, yep, there was something presented to me. However, only stimuli that these subjects reported as being perceived elicited what they're calling this um, wave of activity in the gamma band. So there's what appeared to be a feed-forward wave of activity through the cerebral cortex. And this was accompanied by what they called large-scale network switching. So when you're not engaged in an actual task, there's a network of brain regions, or not engaged in an external task, I should say, because living is an actual task. But when you're not engaged in an external, external task, there's a network of brain regions that tend to become active called the default mode network. These are really involved in self-referential thought, um, your own kind of story of yourself, introspection. And when you don't have an external task, these areas tend to become active. So years ago, scientists observed this and termed them the default mode network because it's the network of regions that come active when the researchers aren't giving you something else to do. So what they notice is a decrease or a switch. So a decrease in activity of this node, a switch from default mode network activity to this other thing and a wave, a wave of gamma activity across the cortex. So, and as long as the stimuli, the stimuli were being processed, this kind of switch remained. So they're calling this a switch and wave model for the processing of consciously perceived stimuli. And I can share my screen here again. And so this is one of the figures from that paper where we're looking at power. So this relates to amplitude, kind of how much, how it's not exactly related to the square of amplitude that we're looking at in these different these different frequency bands in perceived versus not perceived stimuli. So what we can see in panel A on the left, for those of you who don't actually have this picture here, um, we're going to link to all of these papers so you can click and, and see these sources yourself. And then I'll, I'll describe this too. So we have a panel A of gamma activity or gamma power, um, it's Z-scored, so it's not raw power, but the Z-score. For perceived stimuli, versus not perceived stimuli. And what we can see is that, and it's, sorry, this is across time too. So starting at 125 milliseconds after the stimuli were presented, going all the way to, a, to 875 milliseconds. And what we see in the not perceived condition is some initial activity in the occipital area. So again, this area of your cortex that is related to visual, visual perception. And then a little bit of activity spreading into the temporal cortex, but a little bit of parietal, but not too much. What we see in perceived is much more intense act initial activity in the occipital lobe. And then we kind of see it spreading forward from occipital into temporal parietal into frontal cortex. So as they're talking about this kind of wave of activity specifically in the gamma band. And then I'm putting up another, another slide here that's again kind of showing this activity in in gamma power or in the gamma band for perceived versus not perceived stimuli and there's here they've kind of clustered different regions together to try to create this network um, but basically again what we're seeing is this enhanced activity enhanced activity in certain regions and the decrease in, in default mode network regions with perceived stimuli so Bernie, what I wanted to ask you, and you can ask me to go back to those slides if it would be helpful, is what might be the special significance of the gamma and the beta bands to consciousness? Because those two, both gamma and then beta, and this was in the previous, the first paper we, we discussed, they actually had some findings in beta that we didn't get to. 
But gamma and beta seem to come up a lot when we're talking about the study of consciousness. This might be an unanswerable question, but why? <laughs> what, well, what you, what's uh, going I, on here? I believe in wild guesses, and I can give you a wild guess. Um, I love it. And as of several years ago, I think it was a reasonable wild guess. I don't know if it's still reasonable because I don't know everything that gets published, but it's very much worth talking about. The impression that I got a while ago is that you get oscillations around 10 cycles per second, around 10 hertz, uh, which would be theta oscillations and alpha oscillations. And those characters show up in many parts of the brain, and they seem to have multiple sources. But if you have alpha activity in the back of your head, for example, and you also have alpha activity in the front of your head, then there's a good chance that those two activities will couple to each other because they can dance in rhythm with each other. So one possibility is that alpha and maybe theta act as carrier waves. In some cases, that's been claimed about the hippocampus, for example. And we know that the hippocampus actually broadcasts information during slow-wave sleep. So that's one widely believed case of uh, content broadcasting. Then the question is, well, if that's the carrier wave, if that's your AM radio, the frequency that you tune things to, what accounts for the voice, the, this, a signal that you're adding by talking into your cell phone? And that, I would guess, is higher frequency activity, beta, gamma, or whatever else we are calling things these days. So that's a reasonable guess, I think. And I would not say that I believe it, but I would say it's a reasonable guess. Yeah, interesting. I think it's in some ways very useful and in some ways not useful to break up brain activity into these bands, just like it's in some ways useful and in some ways not useful to break up brain activity into regions. Um, in some ways it yeah, helps and, us. And you never yeah. really know until you know. Right? Yeah. This is very inductive science and many people don't quite understand it because it, it's really like uh, searching the dark. And maybe you've got a little candle here and a little candle there. Yeah. And then you have to kind of figure out, well, how do you get from the first candle to the second candle? Because this is a biological system, right? It's very, very complex. It's very, very ancient. Yeah. And it has multiple ways of achieving its functions. So, so you have to be very respectful of the system. And at the same time, we do know that hard work uh, makes a lot of difference. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and one kind of in the wild guess spectrum, mm. one thing that that I've heard speculated about the gamma band that I think relates to consciousness and relates back to GWT is this idea that activity in the gamma frequency kind of in this higher range might serve as an integrating signal um, for long range connections. So when we're talking about if we go all the way back to our metaphor of the city, and we're talking about different regions of the cortex that are anatomically dispersed, that this higher frequency range is very effective at spreading quickly across these anatomically distal regions to act as a kind of integrating signal, which seems like it could connect to GWT. And again, that's 
totally speculative. I don't want our listeners to walk away with like, that's what gamma does, but that's yeah, a hypothesis. It sounds like a very good hypothesis. And, you know, somebody's going to get into the lab and, and test it. Uh, and it's constant, constant work and constant, constant guessing. And if you do a little inspired guessing uh, and a little inspired work, you can actually get somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And so quickly, you know, to wrap up this paper, what comes out of it is this idea of switch and wave with the switch being away from default network and then the wave being in the gamma band. So how, in your mind, might this illuminate or reinforce or dispute global workspace functions? How does, how does this relate to, to the theory? Well, to me, there are maybe three major hypotheses today. Uh, one is kind of an, a modulation, we can call it a modulation hypothesis, and that would be like FM and AM and phase modulation where you have sources in the brain, and we now know that there are multiple sources of alpha, for example. You bet, exactly. And neurons spike when we observe them individually. But when you have two neurons that are loosely coupled to each other, and you get two spiking together, slowly, slowly you add more, and you start getting these beautiful little sine waves, these sinusoidal waves, and then compound waves, of course, that are made up of uh, or can be decomposed into sine waves. So, so these so sine waves are an indication of coordinated local activity. Good, good. And then it also spreads. And so one thing sine waves do is, or can do, is recruit new neurons and you can kind of have a voting system so that the more neurons you get dancing along with you, the, the richer you get, which reminds me of the second major hypothesis, which I like very much from a good group led by Gustavo Deco, just came out. And the Deco group is talking in terms of what is called the connectome. And the connectome is the map of connectivities. It's the street map of this gigantic city. And uh, within this street map, there are some more central streets and squares and train stations, things like that where the traffic is denser. And so what Deco can do then is to say, you know, forget whether this is Hollywood and Vine or forget whether this is Fourth uh, Avenue and uh, Park Avenue, which is a physical, spatial intersection, maybe it is going to be the densest parts of the city. And even the densest part of the city can vary over time, depending upon morning rush hour, evening rush hour, or, or somebody had an accident and everything is blocked for miles around, so on. You can have those dynamic activities taking place. The DECO hypothesis really is that within the connectome, there are what is called a rich club. And in a rich club, in a network, people have fun and play golf and tennis and so on. And they exchange uh, business tips with each other and talk about the weather and whatever they do. And so that creates content. And so there is a real possibility that the most frequently traveled intersections and 
pathways uh, through the connectome will turn out to be the most important parts in terms of this global workspace capacity. So that's two hypotheses. And then I think we can probably think of a third one. Oh, I can think of a third one. But you get the idea, and the important thing is to get, to get across is that there are now different ways of thinking about this. And it's really important to keep an open mind and just understand what the differences are. And then, of course, somebody will come along and run a crucial experiment, maybe, if right. we're lucky. So as we're talking about the DECO paper, you know, I think we're going to get into to some jargony things, right? Like talking about a rich club and talking about the connectome. So one important kind of phrase or jargon to understand here is the dynamical connectome of cortex. Can you talk about what that actually kind of concretely means? What are we talking about when we talk about the connectome? What are we talking about when we're talking about being dynamic? Because I think this is really important to understand their hypothesis. Yes. Let me mention one part of the cortex that seems like a very good candidate for being kind of a, a central place where traffic peaks can happen. That's maybe the best way of thinking about it. So if you come to the airport in San Diego, uh, there's going to be cabs waiting to uh, drive you where you want to go. And that is a traffic concentration that can spread out. It does spread out, in fact, from the airport. And then it goes back to the airport, of course, to replenish the taxi cabs. And I think that is a metaphor, clearly. It's not the brain itself, but it gives you an idea of what Deco and his co-authors are talking about. The connectome is an extraordinary discovery, by the way, I should mention that, because it really took a state-of-the-art instrumentation. The connectome is the map of connectivities in the cortex, and the way they got the map of connectivities is by tracking oxygen atoms flowing through neurons and flowing through blood vessels and anything else that was just heading in the same direction. So this is using fMRI from, I think, over a thousand subjects, right? Really, a thousand subjects. That's fabulous. And, uh, and so uh, that was kind of shocking when it came out. I was certainly surprised, didn't expect it. Not so quickly, but the instrumentation has been accelerating in resolution and in both temporal resolution, how quickly you can pick up the oxygen atoms traveling, and also spatial resolution. So you now know with tremendous precision pretty much where in the brain something is happening. And I have to say, actually, that a lot of the new research that we know for years now has been driven by really major advances. In the in, technology. In technology, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And so Deco and all it all talk about what they're calling fricks or a functionally rich club, like you mentioned, Bernie. And so what they mean by that is a network of functional hubs. So I think briefly we need to kind of talk about the difference between a functional hub or an anatomical hub. So an anatomical hub, we're talking about 
an air, a brain region, a concrete area of the brain that is anatomically highly connected, has a lot of physical connections to different brain regions. A functional hub would be a brain region, and jump in or correct me if, if you think about this or would phrase it differently, Bernie, but a functional hub is a region that tends to correlate activity with a lot of different brain regions. So it tends to be very functionally related, separate not necessarily one-to-one with anatomical connections, although they're certainly related. Does that seem like a fair kind of distinction between an anatomical or a functional hub? Yeah, I think that's right. And then we have to remember the puzzle from the beginning, which is that all the connections in cortex are bi-directional. Right. And that means that we're getting resonance. And that's another big current question. And these wonderful questions, by the way, keep growing and they keep on getting more sophisticated. And then the evidence uh, often turns up to answer some questions. And if we're talking about the thalamus, right, and corticothalamic loops, you know, we could have a situation where two regions of the cortex are not directly anatomically related, but through kind of a relay station like the thalamus, both have right. their individual loops, but are also sharing information through this kind of reciprocal relay, which that would you maybe not get picked up by anatomical connections, but could get picked up by functional connections if they're communicating very quickly and then coordinating yes, exactly. their activity. So this is a huge lesson in the physiology of living animals. We start looking at things at the gross level with the naked eye. And there's been maybe five centuries of cumulative work on brain anatomy. And then we start to get the functional evidence also with Welder Penfield, beginning in the 1920s, actually. And that was extraordinary work in surgical patients. And now we're getting better and better and better with this better instrumentation. And the questions we can ask and possibly answer turn out to be more and more precise. Mm. And then we, we get these kind of dynamic and yes, switches. Yeah. Yes, yes. Awesome. So they talk about, and we're going to kind of define these terms, the, the functionally rich club or fricks. So these are our regions that are more densely functionally connected among themselves than they are to the other brain regions from which they are hypothetically integrating information. So like Bernie talked about with the golf club, you go to the golf club and then you talk to people who are at the golf club. And, you know, maybe this guy was over here talking to this person and this lady was over here talking to these people. And then they come and they're sharing this information that they're all bringing from their different respective lives, right? Or they're different in the case of brain regions, these other connections. And so they're sharing information outside of this rich club, but then within this rich club, they're relaying this information and integrating it. Is that do you think a, a fair explanation of what we mean by a frick? Yeah, that's certainly the concept. And the history of these things, of course, is that we have evidence and we have interesting concepts, and then we change our minds. So the one thing in science that's important is both to understand what we know and also to keep an open mind. Yes, so I'm going to share my screen again here. This is a, a figure from the DECO paper. So when we're talking about these fricks, 
Bernie, this goes to your point that they're they're dynamic. So you actually see different functionally rich clubs in different activities. So this paper is integrating integrating brain data from again over a thousand participants while they're at rest. So the absence of an external task, just kind of an instruction to to rest and not engage in a particular task, and then while they're involved in different seven different external tasks. So emotion, gambling, language, motor, relational, social, and working memory. Um, and each of these different tasks comes up with a kind of a different frick or functionally rich club. So what they did is they looked at the intersection of these seven different tasks and rest to come up with the intersection or kind of the overlap of the regions that were showing up as, as part of a frick. And so they posit that as kind of the global, what they're calling the invariant global workspace. And so I'm now going to kind of go up to another slide because I have a question for you. So again, they identified a set of fricks that are consistent across rest in these seven tasks and that they're referring to as the invariant global workspace because they're showing up no matter what the task is as being part of this highly interconnected, integrated region, set of regions. Um, so the regions that we're showing up here are the precuneus, the posterior and isthmus cingulate cortices, the nucleus accumbens, the putamen, the hippocampus, and the amygdala. So, Bernie, I kind of want to pose to you, what do you think this idea of an invariant global workspace is proposed by DECO at all means? And how does this connect to the idea of it also being dynamical? Because obviously, you know, they're seeing that it's not. Exactly, yes. I think that's the point, that... In a sense, we're talking about dynamical things at a higher level, so that uh, the amygdala, the famous thing for the amygdala, is fear. But it's also actually also involved with turning off fear, so it's involved with trust as well. But let's suppose that you're scared by a snake, and then you have to uh, switch to a different concentration of multiple regions of the cortex, maybe you have to make a decision. Do I run away or do I freeze in place or do I get a stick and hit the snake on the head? Uh, that's a decision and it's good to make the right decision in that case. So these specialized areas have to work together, otherwise you will not survive. Yeah. And I think what's what's interesting here and what really kind of jumped out at me about this paper and, you know, and some of the conversations that we've had is that I think, you know, can be a misconception of the global workspace as being a literal spot in the brain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think at all that that's what Deca et al. are saying. Right. But, you know, is there a tension or how do we kind of integrate this idea of this invariant, these regions that are always involved with this idea of GWT is distributed and dynamic, that there's both invariant global workspace somehow at places in the brain, but actually the global workspace is a dynamically shifting functional core. Can you help us kind of bring those ideas together? Because I don't actually think there's a conflict, but I think on the surface, it could look like there's a tension. Yes, and before the World Wide Web, I think everybody would have agreed with you and in fact, we know that people, before computers and the web became everyday things, people were 
baffled by this. Uh, Rene Descartes is a famous example, as you know, because Descartes, on the one hand, was a theologian, he was Catholic, and so he believed in the unity of the soul, the unity of consciousness, which is a very good idea. And then, of course, he started to see pictures, or maybe he started to see actual sheep's brains, for example, and this damn thing has two big halves. You know, so how do the left and the right side communicate to each other? And that was a question until well into the 1950s, I think, because Roger Sperry, as you know, did the basic science on split brain, where the two hemispheres are separated from each other. And then people really seriously started to think about how come they can actually be integrated. And of course, you and I never read, you know, as long as we have intact brains, we never really wonder about that question because it all seems so easy and obvious. Well, that's how the web seems today. But in 1980, the web was very new and people were not sure at all uh, whether it would work out. And so we have learned to think differently. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, you know, something that's been really interesting for me as someone who started my research career in the world of fMRI, where you're really kind of looking at anatomical regions and their specific changes activity, and then move to EEG, where really regions are out the window, and now you're talking about frequency waves kind of across the whole head, and maybe they're concentrated in a region, but it's, it's diff very difficult to localize. You're really kind of more talking about right. the spread of activity. I think it, it's easy to understand the brain in one way or the other, but really, I think to understand what's really going on, we have to to try to integrate both of, you know, again, going back to the city metaphor, specific regions might be involved in specific activities, but they're all kind of this flow of information communicating. So... Yeah, Ilian, I want to invite you to jump back in here because I know that you have a, a question related to all this, kind of start to bring us back home. Yeah, I did. Uh, I just wanted uh, to ask Bernie if he can talk a little bit more about the functional uh, connectomics of Deco, Vidor, and uh, Kringelbach and how they define a functional bridge club of active uh, cerebral nodes and connectivities that may function as a dynamic global workspace, which I know it's not rigidly tied to one anatomical region or cortex. I know there might be other ways to identify global workspace dynamics in general, but this particular research, how does it reinforce the global workspace theory and the global workspace well, dynamics? It's a particularly nice and sophisticated idea about how these, because we know a lot about let's call them global workspace functions, but we don't know how exactly it happens. So Deco et al. have come up with a very nice way of thinking about that. And that's always a good idea because if you don't have a clear hypothesis, then you don't know what to test. And then you end up you know, doing your best guess, but not really understanding. So, so that's the significance of this. Uh, it's a conceptual advance. And so what we're doing is instead of looking at the Cadillacs and the, well, whatever the, the latest really expensive car is, uh, we're looking at the Cadillacs outside of the tennis club 
And we know there's rich guys inside and rich ladies and so on, but we don't know what they're saying to each other. And that, that is to say, we don't really understand the function of a bunch of wealthy folks getting together and trying to beat each other playing golf or getting into ego games or showing off uh, their latest gadgets, whatever they do. But whatever they do, uh, if, if, it doesn't, if it doesn't turn into benefit, into value for somebody, it's probably not going to last very long. So if we think about that in terms of the economics of the rich club, that is something that's analogous to the exchange of information. And that's what is a plausible idea about what's happening with these highly traveled pathways and centers uh, in the brain. Absolutely. I think that's a really good summary. So like similarly, we don't necessarily know exactly what information they're sharing or what's going on within this this rich club. But what we do know is that there's something <laughs> um, that seems to be important for the integration of the dynamics of the brain as a whole, that they're bringing information in. Oh, absolutely. That information yes. is being exchanged. It's being relayed back out. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so interesting. When I got into this game, Nobody had even a plausible function for consciousness. That may be hard to imagine, but it was the last of behaviorism, perhaps. And so it was a taboo. And if you're not allowed to say a word, then you can't think about that the concept, the corresponding concept. And if you can't think about the corresponding, you can't discover anything new. Basically, you just stay stuck. And so initially, uh, consciousness was taboo in the last hundred years to a significant degree, although you can exaggerate that because there's always other people, you know, who are thinking interesting thoughts and so on. But the professional taboo was very real. You would lose your job, basically, if you didn't talk behaviorism and if you use the consciousness word. Taboos are very good to break down. Taboos have some functions in social groups, but they also are good to think through because they tend to blind us. So I think that's part of the way in which we've come that now we can talk comfortably about this and we can go back to the enormous philosophical traditions, of course, that have thought very seriously and in interesting ways about consciousness. It's, it's not new. You know, what we're doing is not really new, but it's much, it's much more technologically advanced. We have better ideas and we can learn. What experiments we might be looking forward to in order to get a better understanding of how consciousness comes to be? Well, my favorite experiment is one that I wrote about, but nobody's ever done as far as I know. And that's an experiment on what in the meditation traditions is sometimes called pure consciousness. And Aliyah should certainly get somebody to, to do this experiment. Has Zora not tried yet? <laughs> well, uh, you can tell me about the things oh, you've I'm not tried. sure. No, go on. I said, has Zoran. Zoran is kind of our, our non-dual consciousness guy, but, but tell me your thought. Well... Uh, it goes back to way back in the days of Maharishi Mahashyogi, who was a Vedanta scholar, very fine Vedanta scholar, 
who was sent out by his ashram to convert Hawaii to the one true way of thinking. And Vedanta is a very sophisticated philosophy and it's a very sophisticated psychology as well. But it's a subjective psychology, right? Uh, Which does not mean that it's airy-fairy, impossible to test. It means that it's mostly described in terms of the reliable subjective experiences of people who do those techniques for long enough to, to get over all the painful emotional experiences that people often experience on the road to uh, some degree of pure consciousness. And the whole idea of pure consciousness is that it's consciousness without sensory content, for example. I'll just talk about sensory content. So here I was meditating at a long meditation conference where you would meditate maybe three or four or five times per day if you could tolerate it. And there's an air conditioner in the background. And suddenly I realized that every time I think I maybe possibly sort of experience a little bit of pure consciousness, and you could tell because your breath would be suspended naturally. It's not something you make happen, it's something that happens to you. And during those times, I would not hear the air conditioning. And so if you were recording event-related potentials from the scalp for the auditory cortex, you should see a gap. What I don't know, of course, is whether I was falling asleep or maybe I was getting distracted or this, that, or the other thing, right? So, so this is all needs to be done properly, uh, yeah. experimentally, but it can be done. And it's one of the major challenges that we face in meditation research. And one of the major critiques we get is you don't know what they're doing. You know, are they falling asleep? Are they? But I think that, you know, phenomenological interviewing has come a long way. And I think to your point, the subjective experience is very important. Um, And we accept that people can rest and we can have some idea about what's going on. So, you know, I think that the combination of allowing people to have these subjective experiences and, like you said, recording neurophysiological signals while they're doing that, but also combining that with this really in-depth neurophenomenological interview mm-hmm. to where we get the subjective experience so we know, you know, the moment when the sound disappeared. And then we and can actually look at me, that. Tell but, me more. Are, yeah. are we getting data? This is not actually the research I do. Um, Claire Petitjmont, I might be pronouncing her name wrong, has, has advanced um, in the phenomenological interviewing. Um, but this is, this is something that people are doing. I can maybe pull up some papers for, for another conversation because I haven't had time to look at this in a while. But there is... Well, you can tell Pierre that all he needs... Oh, Claire. A, uh, Claire, sorry. That all she needs is a gap detection task. A gap, and, that's a really interesting idea, yeah. Yeah, and you get the idea, right? Because Absolutely. Mm-hmm. you insert artificial caps into the sound of the air conditioner and people push a button when they hear the gap in the sound. And then maybe if the thing works out, there will be endogenous gaps, gaps. that come from the brain itself. And they will push the button. And just like I did a long time ago in, in the psychoacoustics laboratory, where I had hallucinated signals, actually, 
my professor at that time, I don't think he was trying to trick me, but he, he was genuinely expecting me to detect a signal. And I started to detect hallucinatory <laughs> signals. And it happens. It's yeah. not that unusual. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if the, the task, though, of reporting on the gap would disrupt the experience of the gap itself. <laughs> well, it would. Could you it, simultaneously? It, it, it would. And, and you have to intersperse, you know, kind of randomly intersperse these different kinds of conditions with each other and then collect enough data over time, uh, obviously, to control for that. Yeah. So I think this has been an incredibly rich conversation and is starting to get into where we're going to go next time, which is these different states of consciousness, these different qualities of consciousness. So for the next episode, we're going to discuss a paper on sleeping and waking um, that's entitled The Breakdown of Cortical Effective Connectivity During Sleep by Marcelo, I might butcher this last name, but Marcelo Massimini. At all, is that is that the correct pronunciation, Bernie? I think it is. Yeah, so next time we'll get into this conversation around sleeping and waking. And just a little teaser, you know, the, this, the abstract of this paper leads with, when we fall asleep, consciousness fades, and yet the brain remains active. Why is this so? So we will see what Masamini has to say about that and what Bernie thinks about it and how this relates to GWT next time. Sounds great. I really appreciate this. Thank you, guys. Uh, That was really very good. I appreciate it. These are intelligent questions. They're also leading edge questions, right? This is the frontier. And that's really fun. It's exciting. Yeah, it's great to be able to talk about. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you for answering all the questions, Bernie. And uh, it was a great conversation both of you. Wonderful. Very enlightening. Very enlightening. Great. Thank you. Just for our listeners, the papers are going to be linked to um, in the summary and also in Bernie's website. So if you are listening or watching and want to be able to connect to those papers, go to Bernie's website, which is bernardbars.com, or look in the summary for the link to those papers. Okay, great. Thank you so much, guys. This is really nice. It's been actually, uh, it's taken a while for us to work up to this level. And it's really good that you guys are up on the literature and you're studying more. That's exactly the way to go and we'll make progress. As promised, to show our appreciation, we are offering our listeners a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's book on consciousness, science and subjectivity, updated works on global workspace theory. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, spelled S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com. And be sure to enter the word books, B-O-O-K-S, in the coupon code box during checkout for that extra 50% savings. Of course... Bernie's books are available everywhere books are sold, although your 50% discount is only available in the Nautilus shop. If you'd like to discover more about the conscious brain and learn more about global workspace functions, please visit Bernie's new website at bernardbars.com. And I'm going to spell that also. B-E-R-N-A-R-D-B-A-A-R-S dot com.
And thank you for listening.